intro, theme song, interview, song, outro. Welcome back to The Highway with Kyle Shutt. I am slowly losing my mind. Our guest this week is one of my favorite people, Mr. Alex Marrero, the international phenomenon himself. He's been in so many bands, but you might know him as the vocalist for Doom Side of the Moon. So we're going to talk about the metal scene in Mexico City where he grew up. We're going to talk about what Austin was like 20, 30 years ago. We're going to talk about singing in some of the best cover tribute bands around like Brown Sabbath and Doomside. Uh, we had too much to talk about. If you like what you've been hearing on the show, go ahead and knock on wood, feed a squirrel a peanut, whatever you got to do to make sure that your algorithm knows that you should never miss an episode. And if you want to go one step further and help throw a few dollars in the hat so I'm not podcasting in the dark, you can find us at patreon.com slash the highway. For a few scant dollars a month, you can get early access to next week's episode. You can get yourself a shout out on the program like Damian Stewart, Brent Solferino, Al Bonetta, my boy Derek, just Derek. I like it. And Gavin Mahan, we couldn't do what we do without y'all, and I sincerely appreciate your help. We also got to give a big shout out to my sponsor from another monster, Heil Sound. Because if you like the way I sound, it's because there's a Heil in front of me, baby. All right, that's enough monkey business. It's time to talk to one of my best friends. Let's do things my way. The Highway. Hey, hey, buddy, what's up? Hey, Kyle. Doing well, man. How are you? Oh, good, good. Everybody, welcome Alex Marrero to the show. One of my favorite people in the whole world. My dog, Alex. Thanks, Singer man. of every every band. You've been in every band. I've been in some bands. Right? Been in a couple <laughs> bands. I don't know. Uh, most Mostly known for uh, Brownout, Golden Dawn Orchestra. Uh, he, he was in Brownout's version of Brown Sabbath, which is where uh, I got the idea to ask him to sing for Doom Side of the Moon. Yeah, so we, we, did, can, we did that. That's we can for talk sure. about it all. We did, we did the hell out of that. Yep. But uh, but man, you know what? Actually, I wanted to have you on the show because you have such a uh, an awesome story of uh, where you came from and everything. Uh, would you mind uh, telling the people a little bit about uh, coming from Mexico City and and uh, what playing music uh, was like there in, uh, throughout the '90s and stuff? Because that is it's just such a uh, Mexico is so close to us, but it's also so foreign because of all like the uh, you know. The foreign nature Stupid, of it, uh, <laughs> you know, foreign nature of it, and uh, the, the government, the, the the invisible line they make us cross to uh, to go there, and all like they're racist idiots that have a problem with it. But uh, yeah, yeah, what was that like, man? Growing up in in Mexico City and playing music, you know, um, uh, I wouldn't change it for anything in the world. Growing up in that city, that city's a a beast. It's a behemoth, and I love it. Um, I, I wouldn't want to live there again, just because uh, I don't know. My lifestyle is adjusted differently. Um, it was great growing up there. Um, I was exposed to all sorts of incredible things. You know, 22 plus million people, you learn to navigate a lot of different things. And, um, you know, I didn't really, the time that I spent there was, I mean, I moved to Austin when I was 18. So most of the time that I spent there was my youth. And I would keep going back every year and spend, you know, a month or so, something like that, or a couple of weeks. But um, I started playing music when I was 14 and you know, by 15, we had a metal band, a whole bunch of us. And, uh, we were playing the clubs in Mexico city. There was like, you know, three, 
maybe four clubs that I think there's only one of them left now. I mean, we were playing in Rocotitlan. We were playing in, damn, I don't know, El Hijo del Cuervo, which is in a great, really bohemian neighborhood in the south of the city called Coyoacan. And that's where I had my first professional gig. And uh, it was just fun playing heavy metal as a teenager and doing the rounds. So that was uh, that was really uh, eye-opening. And it was cool when I think back on it, like we were such kids, like, because I teach rock camp now and I look back on that. I was like, man, I would have loved to have had rock camp when I was a kid. But at the same time- I think about that a lot. Right? Yeah. Like we were motivated enough as teenagers that we were just doing it like on a profession, not that we were making money, but you know, we were out hustling. We were rehearsing really- you know, diligently, we took it seriously. So I think that really kind of taught me a lot about the discipline of being in a band, what it takes to deal with personalities and the commitment of like, you know, making sure that you rehearse and you get things tight and that you're composing and that you're getting out there and performing. So that was amazing. And all throughout that whole time, I was also coming to visit in Austin. So I was getting exposed to the club scene here. And that's what kind of gave me the uh, the inclination of like well man it's all there's a lot more clubs and there seems to be a really vibrant scene it's a smaller town uh, i really dug the laid back vibe so it all just kind of coalesced to me moving up here and starting to play clubs up here but it was an invaluable time in my life i mean it defines who i am i mean i'm from i'm from mexico city my parents are cuban exiles so i, I live in this kind of limbo of uh i'm not i'm cuban but i'm not cuban uh, I'm Mexican, but I'm not American. Uh, I mean, I'm Mexican, but I'm not Mexican. I'm American, but I'm not American, but I'm all of the above somehow. So, yeah, that's my story, sort of. Sort of. I love it, man. What was your band called, the metal band? <laughs> it's funny. I just found that tape you recently. I was digging through some, because uh, I have bags and bags of cassette tapes, because I used to make mixtapes all the time. It was a band called uh -huh. Corpus Delicti. Which is the body of evidence in uh, Latin. It's a legal term. We thought that was really <laughs> badass when we were 15. <laughs> it sounds evil. Oh, yeah. And, you know, yeah, I, I, and, I, uh, <laughs> it's just silly is what it was. <laughs> what uh, what years was that, too? That was like the, the kind of that was, mid, that was late 90s? No, that was 90, 91. I'm... I'm considerably older than you, believe it or oh, not. Oh, okay, wow. Yeah, 90, 91. I, I know, I've, yeah, <laughs> I've got your passport info uh, from when I had to book a bunch of flights. That's right. It was funny with Doomside because was I was always the youngest guy in any musical endeavor, and as time does progress, I remember we were in Denver or something backstage, and the age thing came up, and I realized that I was, for the first time, kind of the that was, eldest yeah, kind of like me, like when, when, the when the sword started, I was 20 years old. Yeah, like now I'm like 38 now. I'm just like, whoa, how much time went by? What happened? What? You know, everybody, people are asking me for advice now. I'm like, what? I don't know anything. What are you asking me for? <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I wanted to... Um, Talk a little bit because uh, your band, when you moved to Austin, uh, Gendaya, was was that a band from Mexico that you brought to Austin, or did that form while you were in Austin? That was when I moved here. I moved with two of my best friends at the time. They had moved up here and moved here in '94, and we put together different mutations of bands that were doing kind of Spanish language rock in the mid '90s. And then in '99, we 
solidified. It started as a three-piece, acoustic three-piece, and slowly it started to build into a, a nine-piece we had. Gandaya was like a, kind of a world Latin. We used to do, you know, Latin funk and Afro-Cuban music, Brazilian music, a little bit of reggae. We just kind of mixed it all up, and we put out two records. That band lasted a good part of eight years, more or less, seven years. But that was, yeah, that started in the early 2000s, and that was, you know, the next phase of my education into the music business because that was the best time to get into the music business, for real, the 2000s. <laughs> mm -hmm. that's, where the, that's where all the money was. <laughs> oh, man, it was all happening. <laughs> God. And uh, that's, that's what I loved about Austin is because it's, you know, the live music capital of the world, or it, it was at least back in those days. And, you know, it, but it wasn't just for rock or indie or whatever. There was like, any kind of music you could see any night of the week, anywhere you went. And all those musicians all co-mingled and stuff. And um, uh, I, I sort of came from the punk and metal scene, but that didn't mean that, you know, Latin funk bands also would play like the punk clubs and stuff like that. It was very... Um, I, I guess you could say incestuous. I don't know. Is that a weird word to use? But it was just very mixed. Everybody played everywhere, you know? And it all, it, was, it um, all coalesced. Yeah, I agree. It all coalesced. Like you could go to the Flamingo and see a touring reggae band or even a punk band or a local world music band. And yeah, it was an interesting time. The mid nineties were very fruitful. And I, I, you know, I credit that to a lot of my musical education because there was, I was like a sponge at the time and there was mm -hmm. so much great music of all kinds going on. And there was a big Latin contingent. You know, there was a band called Tamer that influenced everybody in the scene that I know from that era. So yeah, it was a really cool time. There was a lot of variety and it was amazing to go out every night and be able to see just about any kind of music. Totally. The, uh, the old emos was like our stomping ground for like the, oh, the yeah. punks and metalheads and stuff, but also Absolutely. like a, a group of Fantasma would also play there on like a Saturday night. And, you know, emos like the crowd back then was kind of too cool for school. A lot of times, like, you know, getting them to move or like, you know, do any, any kind of crowd participation was a, was a stretch in a, in a spoiled town like Austin. But, oh, uh, yeah. but Grupo was like the only band that could get the butt shaken in emos. You know what I mean? I remember. <laughs> was, like, oh was, yeah. I remember those shows. Those were fun. I loved the fact that they would go to emos cause it was, so kind of out of left field but it worked it was mm -hmm. great it really did and it, it, it really bridged that gap and uh and watching grupo go from th that little funk band that would play emos all the way up to you know working with prince and like doing all kinds of crazy stuff on their trajectory um while the oh, sword yeah. was kind of uh, up and going off on our weird trajectory with metallica and all that kind of stuff it was really cool to see like all these um just different arms of, of Austin music, just like kind of worming its way into like the, the, the national, uh, and, and worldwide circuits. Um, but then absolutely uh, you can only, you can only do that for so long and bands, you know, mutate and kind of the other things happen. And, um, Grupo, they had just sort of shed some of the, um, I, I guess from my perception, they had shed a lot of their more traditional kind of Latin elements and just wanted to do more like a, like kind of like an Afro funk kind of thing where it was sure. It didn't necessarily have like a vocal element. If it did, it was like gang vocals and it was a lot more psychedelic. And, um, and that's when, yeah, I, I think like a lot of the focus for, for group of Phantasma just sort of like went half of it stayed with group one, half of it went into Brownout. And that's, isn't that when you started playing with them as a percussionist? Well, Gandaya and Grupo Fantasma started literally at the same time at the old empanada parlor. Mm 
and I was um, I'm actually on the first group of Fantasma record. I played percussion with them for about two and a half weeks <clears throat> before Jose Galeano came into the picture. So okay. I've known those guys. I've known those guys since the inception, and we've been close since and collaborated in different ways. And then, <clears throat> then they did the brownout thing, and they existed as brownout for about ten years uh, before I even appeared. The whole my coming into the picture with them came about with when they did that residency where they were going to do, you know, Brown Sabbath, and I just tossed my name in the mix to sing a song, and I almost didn't get, you know, I almost it, that almost didn't happen because they had so many singers that were interested in doing it, but at the end of the day, I'm none sure. of them actually none of them actually showed up, so uh, <laughs> I ended up, uh, it ended up being, oh hey, you were interested in doing this one, right? Well, can you do this one, this one, this one? I was like, oh okay, cool, yeah. Yeah, and that and was how I saw you perform for the first time too, because uh, it was with um uh brown out as brown sabbath who for anyone that doesn't know out there they do kind of like latin funk versions of black sabbath songs it's incredible it, it's uh it's so entertaining but um y'all asked me you were doing a big show at the uh the austin city limits uh moody theater downtown and you asked if i wanted to come play a couple of songs and uh yeah. I, I think you asked me to play i can't remember the exact two but uh, when i showed up to the sound check the two songs were maybe like six five six songs apart and uh beto the guitar player he asked me he's like hey do you know any of these other songs you want to play and i was like beto you know i know every black sabbath song right like i, I know can, all these songs <laughs> I yeah play totally. any of them right now so i think i ended up jamming out like eight something songs with y'all and it was so much fun and i just uh, i love the energy that you brought to the stage you really uh, uh, embodied the character and um i was uh, i was so impressed uh that thanks just, man you were thanks such a an entertainer and uh, that's why whenever I came up with the the idea to do Doomside of the Moon as like a heavy metal Pink Floyd experience, I, I really wanted to ask you, but I was um, I was really nervous that you just weren't going to want to do another super legacy tribute act, essentially, because y'all toured uh, Brown Sabbath pretty hard for a couple of yeah, years. Yeah, it turned uh, so into that, a that, thing. It wasn't like just a flash two of the records. Pan. No, yeah. it turned into a thing. That Moody show was amazing. That Moody show was that we had just come home from a month-long tour, so we were running on all cylinders, mm -hmm. and I'd really honed in on what I was doing as a front man because, you know, I, I was of the opinion, I was like, I'm not just going to go up there and stand there and sing these songs. I mean, this is Ozzy. Let me step up the showmanship and do wardrobe changes and do the whole thing and give, give it my own sp I was never trying to do Ozzy, even though – I, at times I sound a lot like him, but I just wanted to do my own thing with it. And it became this over the top thing, which was great. It was a blessing and a curse. Uh, but yeah, we did the hell out of it. And you're right. When you asked me to do the doom side thing, my first, my first answer was no. <laughs> I, I remember really. it very well. <laughs> Calling you. I was like, I, I, I knew, but then, uh, I remember I was like, I'm going to have to give him some demos so he can like hear my idea. And I remember sending yeah. you, I think the demo for money and time. And then like, I just, I, a few days went by and I got that phone call. You're like, ah, fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was, I had to think about it. Cause, cause it's like just the, it had been so consuming with the Sabbath thing. And I've never been a big covered man guy. And I was really wanting to dive into being in Brownout as the f official singer and writing original material with Brownout and getting into that next phase of that band after I'd been absorbed. 
um, by the band as the, as the singer because Brownout was an instrumental band for for mm-hmm. always. So yeah, but then I listened to the stuff and I was like, this is so it's different. It's not going to be. It's not going to turn into the big. We're not going to tour it for two years, and it just sounded like way too much fun. And it was really a challenge. I saw it as a vocal challenge. So that's why I was like, yeah, this will help. This will help me as a singer. It'll push me forward. And and yeah, that those that first session for the 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 Doomside record that that was a, one of the most challenging vocal sessions I've ever done. It because it required a lot. Totally. And it's how do you feel when you're tracking? Uh, stuff like that like uh, how hard is it not to sing with an english accent like do, <laughs> doing Aussie you know what's funny right what's, that to Pink Floyd, you know you know what's funny my friend uh <clears throat> my friend brian ramos who's a great uh you know producer and he was actually the, ri- the original singer in group of fantasma he has a thing where he gives me shit because he, he's like why do you sound like a british guy when you sing in english what what is that all about i'm like i do <laughs> <laughs> So I guess it was challenging. There was a couple of words that you were like, yeah, I don't want you to pronounce that that way. I was like, okay, fine. I I can adjust that. I guess it just comes from listening to a lot of British metal and rock and growing up, Mm -hmm. I I guess. I don't know. But um, those those sessions were super challenging because it's it's one thing because there's three singers in Pink Floyd and each singer, each singer has its own different texture. And so I didn't want to just mimic that because this is an aggressive take on it. So I have to grab all that, make it sound still like the songs, but add an edge to it and then just kind of put a little bit of myself. So it was it was one of the most challenging vocal sessions I've ever done. It it really took a lot. The whole production was challenging. Just I I remember at one point we were um, referencing the original album just to like hear how they did a certain thing before we would track. And I just remember at a certain point, like me and Stuart, the the engineer, looking at each other like, "What are we doing? (laughs) This this is wrong. This feels wrong, man. I don't know." Yeah, that definitely (laughs) crossed my mind a couple of times. I was like, "Wait, is this is this really right? Is this sacrilege?" What's going on? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Everyone loved it, but uh, but it, it's one thing to cover um, a, a song or, or be a tribute band, but uh, with Pink Floyd, they had such um, a visual element to their output that uh, it would be a crime to ignore um, that. And I, that's why I was like, I want to have a full on laser show to like accompany this. But um, a lot of times, whenever bands project onto the stage, like they'll they'll wear all black or whatever. But this time I was like, no, what if we all wore all white and got all white instruments and whited out everything on the stage so that the HD projection that we can put on there is just makes the whole stage look like it's moving. And uh, anyone that's on drugs right now will, you know, be in for a real treat. And um, even if you're not on drugs, I, I wanted to give away like free like uh, light diffraction glasses so that like the lasers like dance like crazy. And just I wanted it to be like this just full on experience. And that um, was uh, it was really difficult to put that on. It was like putting on a Broadway show. Like we had to have wardrobe and, you know, lights, uh, you know, a video element to it and everything. It was a huge crew. I um the, yeah after the show like i love pl- i love playing shows but after a doomside show when we take a bow it's like whoo we did oh, it. <laughs> yeah. no that was a big pr- i mean i'm always impressed in the way that you visualize things and see them through because your attention to detail is always very meticulous and you want things done right and when you take on something like pink floyd who basically invented this kind of rock show 
They invented uh-huh. it. I mean, who was doing any kind of light show like that? No, nobody. nobody. So to take it on is is pretty ballsy, and I commend you on it, and I think you did a great job. And I think the people that saw it uh, were equally as impressed because it was done right, and that's really to your credit. So uh, well, kudos, to you, on, kudos you. to you on that because it was super fun, but it was logistically is a lot of moving pieces and getting the right look and the right feel. I mean, wardrobe-wise, for me, it was easy. I just... I just had to go. Yeah, you were from all white my all house. The time, so. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, "Yeah, I can do that, no problem." <laughs> oh God, dude! I was in uh, Johnson City, uh, Tennessee, uh, on a sword tour one time, and um, before the shows, I would usually walk around, you know, the the crowd. I, I like talking to people. I like being in the the, the energy of the show yeah. before it happens and stuff. And I, I passed this one guy, and he taps me. He goes, "Hey, man, weren't you in that all white Pink Floyd cover band?" <laughs> <laughs> I was like, um, does he mean you, that? Please, which, which way yeah, does he like, mean you, that? <laughs> please not refer to it that way. Uh, dude. <laughs> it's just like, oh, good God. Random. Random. Oh man. And that, uh, yeah, that, that wardrobe made for some rules backstage too. Cause I was just like, okay, uh, we're all wearing all white. Okay. Um, uh, no red wine. Yeah. No. Uh, yeah. We're only drinking Sprite and vodka. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> it was like on and off. Of a, on a, and off. Yeah, Put right? it on. Yeah, yeah. Do the show. Take it off. <laughs> but um, it, whenever you do a tribute band, you always wonder what the people, if they're still alive, you know, think about what you're doing. You know, and I was uh, yeah. curious to see if any of the Pink Floyd people would come to the surface or anything like that. Nothing really happened with that. But um, but you with Brown Sabbath did get the chance to perform in front of Ozzy. Uh, how was that? Uh, just doing your tribute to the to the the man himself that was really interesting because there was a couple of different tiers to it we got a friend of ours eddie torres sent us he had been listening to some xm radio thing and he recorded it because sharon and ozzy were on the show and they started talking about us and they're like, yeah, we're going to, these guys are great. And Ozzy, tell him what you were listening to. And he's just like, who the fuck do I know? <laughs> and, uh, but, uh, so that day was really surreal. Cause he's like, yeah, these fucking guys are great. This Mexican guy sounds just like me. I'm like, what the fuck? And they're talking about this, this festival that they were putting together in Mexico called Oz Fiesta that we had no idea about. We heard that we were on it through this radio show <laughs> so holy shit are you serious like, yeah yeah we're like oh well i guess we're going to mexico to play oz fiesta for whatever reasons that ended up not happening so there was when we played the rocks we played the roxy a few times and there was there was talk of ozzy coming by but he never did and then at one point they reached out to our management about um, the TV show that they have where basically the, he and his son travel around, get on adventures, and they wanted us to be on the show. So we agreed, and it was funny because the location was uh, Ginny's Longhorn Saloon. It was supposed to be like, oh, yeah, we're just playing here because that's where you know a big 10-piece band is going to fit in this tiny corner stage and that's that's just how we roll here it's just that's where we're gonna yeah, play. for those that don't know so, jenny's little longhorn yeah it's like a, a tiny old church sort of yeah dance it's a, hall. It's, I mean, yeah like it's 50 awesome. people are in there it's way too many yeah it's it's a honky tonk it's fantastic but it's tiny so you know it was tv it's reality tv and it was just kind of like we set up and then you know 
they came in and it's like, oh, here now, just there's camera, there's a crew, it's just in a just us and a crew, and like okay, now just re, just hang out with Ozzy and and Jack, and it was awkward, but it was really <laughs> cool. They were, yeah, it was just really. I mean, it's like it's reality. At the end of the day, it's reality TV, right? But honestly, anytime there's they cameras were so, on, it's awkward. Yeah, it's awkward, but they were so sincere and Ozzy was so gracious and so complimentary. They really were genuine. Um, so we we played a couple of songs. We I was like, hey, is there anything you want to hear? He's like, yeah, play Sweet Leaf. So we played Sweet Leaf for him. It was really surreal. I had to put on my sunglasses because suddenly I'm like, I'm singing Ozzy to Ozzy. And I'm right. like, well, the, at Jenny's Longhorn Saloon, I'm like, is this? I couldn't even have dreamt of this kind of scenario, even if I tried. Uh-huh. So it was really, it was really interesting. And then at the end of it, we had a few friends. They allowed us a few friends to come back in and fill the joint up. And long, the Longhorn Saloon is known for um, chicken shit bingo. So we played chicken shit bingo with Ozzy. <laughs> if anybody out there <laughs> isn't from Texas and doesn't know what chicken shit bingo is, you you have a, a bingo board. Uh, so instead of drawing balls, you know, out of a, a container to read them to play bingo you have a chicken in a cage that every time it takes a shit on a number that's the number that's your bingo yeah that's your bingo (laughs) did the chicken shit on your number yeah you win it's a lot of fun actually but uh but that's bad that's a way better story than than our ozzy story uh because the sword only played your ozzy story with ozzy one time it was actually i was i was super excited this was right before warp riders came out and so this would have been 2010, summer of 2010. Uh, this is when iTunes uh, had a festival in London, uh, in Camden, and it was at um, a place, and it was actually a chalk farm, the Roundhouse, which is like a super legendary venue. I always wanted to play there. It doesn't hold that many people, a few thousand, but um, but it's just it's legendary. Everybody's played there, you know, Sabbath, uh, Zeppelin, any band you can imagine always played there right and then uh so the deal with it it was like a 30-day festival where it was like two acts every day um so it was basically just like a show but the only way to get into the festival was to register through itunes and they you know you get sent the ticket if you get sent the ticket you just kind of get the ticket for whatever show you want i think it was like tony bennett was the night before us nice so it was like i love that i love that about european festivals like the diversity oh god i know yeah it's it's awesome I, i love it too um but uh we got the offer to open for ozzy there so it was gonna be like the sword and ozzy uh, as one of the shows, and we were at the Roundhouse in London. I was like, "Fuck yes, finally! This is going to be amazing. Going to meet, <laughs> nice. going to meet Ozzy. This is going to be sick." And uh, so we get there, set up, you know, sound check, and everything. We're just, you know, situations like that when you're just backstage, you just kind of like hang out and see what happens. And so uh, mm-hmm. we were all pretty jet lagged and stuff, and we we're just hanging out in our dressing room doing nothing. And Ozzy walks in. And we're like, holy shit, it's Ozzy. Everybody, you know, you're just like kind of standing up. And then right right when he walked in, all of his handlers behind him were like, no, 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 Ozzy. No, no, not no, in not there. In there, not in there. Yeah, come out, come out. And so they like shoot him away real quick because um, there was, uh, I guess, a third band that got added on there as part of like a MySpace contest. It was like there was some kind of contest that MySpace was having where if, you won, if your band won, you got to open that show or whatever. Wow. And part of that deal was that you got to meet Ozzy. 
So the, the, his handlers were like shuffling him into like meet this other band that like won the contest, <laughs> and he never came back and said hi to us, and we never met him, and Hell that was no. it. That was it. <laughs> uh, so yeah, my that's my space. very that's funny, very lackluster Aussie story. Thanks iTunes. That's fun. Uh, it, it, it was a fun show. I, I don't care. It was fine. The only the only thing that I thought was kind of whack about it was it was right when, like Puffy Borden stopped playing drums for him and. Um, uh, Zach Wilde had just gotten fired, so it was like it, the band oh, was right. like, brand I remember. new. Yeah. So it, it was like watching an Aussie cover band, but with Aussie singing. It was weird. It was a good. Yeah, show. I, mean, I, I, I remember that transition. I remember that transition. I was like, oh man, that's. I mean, great players, of course, obviously top tier. Absolutely, but you you do get attached to uh, certain cats. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Man, one of the, um, you, you've been on so many records and projects and, and and things like that but uh something that a lot of people don't know about you is that you are the voice <laughs> of the capital metro <laughs> uh public transit system uh, i am unless they've taken I it down am. are you still uh, yeah you still yeah loaded it like anytime a bus stops and it tells you you know number one north lamar that's your boy alex right here he uh yeah. does voiceover work and yeah, yeah uh, what was how did that come about do you have an agent that like fields these things for you or was that just like a a classic just right time right place story i've been doing voiceover work probably since i'm shortly after since i moved here i've been doing voiceover work since about since about 96 and most of the stuff i do is in spanish and i had done yes i do have an agent but that didn't come about through them um i um i had done some stuff for capital metro in the past <clears throat> where they needed someone to do english and spanish and then when the the metro rail became a thing that they were building, they reached out to me and they're like, "Would you be interested in doing this job?" And I was like, "Yeah, of course." So I worked. I did a bunch of stuff for months because m- my voice is in all the automation, like all the, uh, you know, anytime you press a button in any of the machines, the physical machines on that metro rail stop for the hearing impaired. I mean, the visually impaired. All that stuff. It's a neat party trick if I'm like at the White Horse or something. I just walk across the bless <laughs> to you. Here, press that button. See what happens. <laughs> and um, so, um, yeah, so I did that. And then it extended to their uh, their buses. And, yeah, I do stuff. I've been working with them for about 10 years. And, you know, the I do little changes here and there, like when Manchaca changed to Menchaca, I had to do all these things, and it's great. I get to do it from home in my underwear, and I send it out, and it's perfect. That's a that's a good mental image right there. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, I figured that would be good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, for the <laughs> I don't really uh, do it in my underwear, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for the uh, the musical guests, I usually ask them uh, if we can play a song at the end, but I might just play the bus schedule. Uh, at yeah, the end of this there episode. you go. <laughs> yeah, do it. <laughs> it was Good like, God. what the hell? <laughs> I know. Number number one, North Lamar. Yeah. That was my bus all the time. Number one, represent. It was funny. Um, well, the funny the funny thing is, I I I rode the Metro Rail a few times, um, and I it was funny to see people's reaction to the voice, especially when it goes to the Spanish, because everything has to be super well enunciated. Right. You know what yeah. I mean? So it sounds like an SNL skit. So it's funny to look around and just see people laugh at it. It's pretty it's pretty funny. Yeah, I get a kick out of that. Do you get a free bus like like a lifetime bus pass? No, no, not really. I still have to pay, but you know. 
<laughs> I get to work. I get to do it from home, so this is great. I just didn't know if you'd have like a laminate. You know what I mean, like a cat metro, like like at a festival or something. Be like, you know, just flash cash. it. Yeah, yeah kind of right? like Wayne's yeah. World. Always just kind of showing it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's funny. Hey, I might be even able to drive a bus. Hell, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah, Times that'd be interesting. Enough, right? yeah. I don't know if I don't know if anybody really wants that, but. <laughs> how um are you still teaching music down at the uh the, the straight music uh in the, um, the music school in the back of that i do i do still teach at the austin school of music um i have a a select number of in-person students and we're all masked up and socially distanced and it's worked out pretty well and i do a lot of virtual lessons as well so yeah i'm still i'm still teaching you know always juggling three or four different things um especially now since live performance is not a thing as you know yeah somebody some of us may have noticed <clears throat> so <laughs> yeah so yeah i still teach I, and it's I, it's I great i really enjoy yeah because I, I i teach guitar lessons uh just online and stuff like that and I, I love uh teaching just because it just it constantly makes me reevaluate myself be like oh man i'm actually not as good as i thought i was or something yeah. you know what i mean it's uh do you um do you have many students, I guess, that like you can like really see the progression in? Because a lot of your students are kind of on the younger side, right? I, I do. I get I get a lot of beginner students, but it's just like anything. It depends on what the student's goals are. There's some students that I've had for years that came in not knowing a single thing, and they've just blossomed into being able to really play and write their own stuff and be really creative. And that's when it's really rewarding. You know, mm -hmm. it's just teaching is always just a crapshoot because you never know if it's just the parents that just want them to take the lessons. But if you can connect with them, and I do have a few that I've connected with who are awesome that are really into it. Um, yeah, it's super rewarding. And you're absolutely right. It keeps me in check and it keeps me wanting to keep learning because sometimes I'll throw a curveball and I was like, oh, yeah, well, I, I got to brush up on that or you know, totally. make sure that it keeps me sharp in that sense. So it's really, it's really great. It's really great. For me, it's, it, I, I found that, you know, you can, you can teach people music all day. It's pretty much just like teaching math or anything else. But the thing that I think it's really important to instill in people is the desire to want to do it. And that's kind of more where I found that it's much more of like a philosophy kind of thing where you have to dress up you know, practice in a way that makes it fun. You know, it'd be like, don't, don't even call it practicing. You know what I mean? Just call it like, do this for like your warm ups, And then when you go in, like, I, I just try to avoid like the words that a lot of people, you know, that kind of have negative associations with or like, like chores or something like that. You know what yeah. I mean? I don't want it to, oh, yeah. to feel like that. So it's like getting them to, <clears throat> to want to do it. That's when I, I, um, yeah. When you see it click with people, you're like, Oh, oh cool, man. I, just, I, I love seeing that. I, I love teaching. Um, it's really great. And you're right. I mean, it is, what why are you doing this and i have students from the age of seven to the age of 70 like literally all across the board so it's interesting to see where people are coming from and i'm always really excited about people on the older side who just decided to pick it up because they're mm -hmm. really want they're doing it because they really want to enhance their lives and those are really rewarding because you can push them and they're into it but it's absolutely mm -hmm. like what what do you what do you what are you trying to accomplish right like do you just want to get your parents out of your hair and just do this or do you want to learn about how this can really enrich your life and the people around you right mm -hmm. 
So it's interesting. Yeah, it is. Oh, but ain't nothing like playing a show on the road, man. Let me tell you. Oh, <laughs> God, I, I don't even so remember much. what that's like anymore. <laughs> I know. I, I I worry that like enough time will go by to where we'll all just be like, "What a tour? What is that? How do you do that? How are we going to get yeah. there?" Like, you just, yeah. just forget everything, you know? Um, yeah. Because I'm I'm used to touring, you know, in in a van with any, anywhere from like four to six other people, whatever like that. What's it like trying to take? you know, a huge, like nine, <laughs> 10, 14 piece band. Cause I mean, Grupo at one point was, wasn't it like 12, 13 people, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't yeah, know. If how it's, do you uh, do that you know, in a van? Yeah. You know, I, I understand if you're like, you're a, you know, a four piece band with a, you know, eight piece crew and you've got buses and this and that and blah, blah, blah. But like just taking an, an act like that on the road. Cause I, we would be out, you know, playing like Reggie's in Chicago you know, mm-hmm. and then like see Grupo stickers backstage and stuff. Be like, Grupo played here. Damn. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, yeah. No. How'd they fit that's on the one, stage. What the fuck? That's one thing about both Grupo and Browner, which are essentially it's essentially the same group of people. Like Grupo has mm-hmm. two extra people that are not in Brownout, and I'm not in Grupo. So, but they've always had an old school kind of DIY. Like you just got to get out and tour and do it, and that's how you. That's how you do it, right? It's that philosophy. So I've always respected mm-hmm. that. However, yes, it is a pain in the ass touring with nine people, nine, ten people. It requires um, multi- two vehicles. Like there's a big van, a 15-passenger van, and then we'll rent another mid, mid to large size vehicle so that – I mean in the old days, the like the first tours they did, I'm pretty sure it was everybody in that one van, which – you know, probably in their everybody's in like twenties, right? But nowadays, when when Brownout goes out, we have the fifteen passenger van, and we'll rent like a minivan or something like that to spread it all out. Because it's, yeah, I mean, if there's any the, any advice to people in the coming up in the music industry who want to have bands, keep it small. Just keep it small. <laughs> oh, it's great. Like, it's great. It's yeah, an amazing right. sound. It's an amazing sound, but. It's hard to make money anyway, so you start tacking on people. Mm-hmm. And I love, all, I love all these people. These are great musicians, and they're my brothers. It has nothing to do with that. It's just, you know, I've been in so many large bands, and I'm like, what? And I got sucked back in because then I, I veered into just being a drummer, and I was in a four-piece band, for, and we toured for a couple of years, and it was amazing. It was just four of us. I was like, I love this. And then suddenly I get sucked back in, and I'm in a – you know, three bands with more than 10 people. It's like, how does this happen? (laughs) Why? That's crazy. That's just nuts. I, um, yeah. Cause when I met you, I just, I knew you as a percussionist, um, and then uh, a singer or whatever. I didn't know that you played guitar until much later and everything like that. But, uh, it was talking to you about how you became a drummer, uh, by just going to new Orleans, um, every weekend and just sitting in with, yeah, whoever was just jamming that night, man. What was that like? Because like New Orleans is such a unique music city, where like you just kind of there's just music everywhere, anywhere yeah. you go, a street corner. I mean, Austin yeah. has a lot of clubs and things like that, but I just feel like in New Orleans, it's just like in the street. There's just so much music; it spills out everywhere, and like you can just go to a a club and yeah, a band will be playing for like five hours, you know, and it's just all the members just switch out whenever somebody gets tired and this and that. What was that like? Um, just going there cold and just, uh, just sitting in with whoever decides to get on stage. So what was going, the way that went down, it was when Gandaya ended, 
I was burnt out and I was like, you know what? I just, cause I was the front man, lead singer, manager, shrink of everything in that band. Right. So when that ended, I was like, I was fried. So, uh, I was like, I need to be a drummer. And I hooked up with Topaz, who is the leader now of Golden Dawn Orchestra and, uh, a couple of other friends, Bobby Perkins, John Branch, fantastic guitar player. And we formed the band. There was an extension of Topaz. Topaz played like funky acid jazz in New York in the 90s. Then he moved here and we connected and we put this swampy, bluesy rock quartet called Mudphonic. And we were touring a lot and we were going to New Orleans very regularly. And I was a green drummer. So I would just be, because these are long shows. And I'd be yeah. playing and I was just developing my chops. And there's so many great players in New Orleans, especially horn players. So you're doing a four hour gig and there's a line of horn players that are going to come in and they want to take their 30 choruses and you got to keep the fire underneath all of them. And then you got all these badass drummers that are staring you down, waiting for you to get tired to be like, hey, come on. I got more chops than you. You, you tired yet? Yeah, let me get up there. Which at times by the by the third hour of the gig, I was like, Yeah, just come up and play, man. I don't care if you play circles <laughs> around me. I'm gonna go have a drink. But touring the country but touring the country with that band is really what so was my drum music school. That's what really just doing it, I became a professional drummer. And New Orleans and San Francisco had a lot to do because when we were hit those cities, and those were really high level musician cities that I got put in situations that humbled me, and that's the best way to learn. Yes, it is. Well, was it a situation where, like, in every single show, there would be people that would be showing up to, like, solo and shit like that? You know what I mean? Or was that just specifically, like, just certain cities where that was kind of, like, the vibe? Certain cities. Certain, the nature of the music we were playing, it was very jammy, very a lot of mm -hmm. open-ended solos. Like, it was very jammy. So... It was just in the nature of that jam, kind of jam band circuit almost. Um, so it was very part of, just part of those kind of shows. There's always people. And Topaz had known so many people from touring in his own right as a horn player. So as a horn player, you know more a lot of horn players. So especially in New Orleans, there was just a lot of horn players coming in. Yeah. You know. That's what I, I love about New Orleans is because, like, in, in Texas a lot of times, I, I, I don't know if this is true in every case, but... A lot of people that I knew you play the instrument that they play because that was the instrument just in the house. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like the, there was a guitar yeah. in my house, so I played the guitar yeah. because that's what I totally. had. In New Orleans, yep. sometimes it's like all there is in the house is a tuba. Yeah. You know, and so the kid plays the tuba, and he plays the tuba like I play the guitar. You know, and yep. so like that. So and that's why I think that music from New Orleans specifically just has such a just attitude that you can't find anywhere else. And I think uh, a nowhere lot of it's else just because yeah, yeah, it's um. It's a God, brass and awesome. it's a brass yeah. it's a brass and drum town. Just how Austin mm. is a guitar town, New Orleans is a brass and drummer town. It's so sick. I love there's nothing I used to love more than just walking down the street in New Orleans and then all of a sudden just a parade out of nowhere just happens. Like a band just starts walking down the middle of the road and people just start following them and next thing you know there's just a party in the street for no it's reason. It's a at party. All. Yep. Insta party and they're and they're grooving so hard. It's amazing. One time yeah, one time I was walking down uh, Frenchman Street and uh, a guy was um, like a construction worker was driving a cherry picker 
uh, down yeah. the road very slowly just to get to the construction site or whatever. But everyone around him just started cheering like, yeah, what's up? So he started like honking the horn and raising it up and shit. And it was just like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One of, the, one of the funniest things I've seen. I love uh, New Orleans. Dude. I love New Orleans. Love New Orleans. Yeah, me too. One of these days. Going yeah. back, I'm gonna, yep. I'm gonna party hard there. Um, so, what's going on these days? You got any music uh, you're you're cooking up that you want to talk about, or you just uh, you know, it's been an interesting trend. It's well, yeah. laying low, yes, but um, I've made just doing a lot more stuff at home. Um, I'm recording tracks for people. You know, I can do drum tracks or I can do vocal percussion tracks. Um, we've done some stuff with Brownout. We kind of written some some stuff that we're trying to get in placement on. And um, we did a, a podcast with the music. We got commissioned to, the, to do the music for a podcast, which was really interesting. That was a good one. Um, nice. So I'm just doing, you know, I'm always... I've had to step up my uh, my studio game a little bit, and I'm just you know I do voiceovers and um, record stuff for other people and compose music for you know whether it be a commercial or anything like that. Basically, whatever comes in, if I can do it, I will. It's one of those things you just gotta you just gotta make it all work, right? I always just say yes to everything, and then I just figure yeah. it out later. I'm just like shit. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What have yeah. I got myself into? Yeah, totally. <laughs> Talk about trial well, uh, by where, fire where can, sometimes. Uh, yeah, right. Well, uh, where can people find you? Like, because uh, just people like you and me, you got too many projects. Uh, is there any one place where they can go that uh, you would recommend uh, to find all the uh, awesome things that you're up to? Yeah, man. Probably my website. I mean, Facebook is always a, a quick one. Uh, I have a personal and an artist page, but my artist page, I don't really spend much time on Facebook or social media these days. So my website yeah. is alexmoreromusic.com, and you can reach out there if you have any whatever musical needs or voiceover needs or you just want to say hey what's up you can reach out to me there or through the old facebook alex marrero i'll have an artist page and a personal page the personal page tends to be a little more active but yeah anyone or an instagram at music marrero yeah i'm around i do things follow him enjoy life listen to his music <laughs> you're one of my favorite people man thank you so much for being on the show uh, dude no thank you man it's always a an honor and always really fun to be a part of anything that you're that you're uh, any of your endeavors hell yeah do you think uh do you think it'd be okay with the dudes if we played a brownout song uh, i don't see why not yeah, maybe we'll yeah. Put in the, any any uh any favorites i loved your uh, over the covers ep but i didn't know if you had any uh, anything else you'd rather play uh well here's <laughs> pandemic was interesting because we released we sat on a record that steve berlin from los lobos produced we mm -hmm. we had to wait to put it out because of Grupo Fantasma also had a record cycle coming out. So we sat on the album for about a year and then we released it March 6th of 2020. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, so that record really just kind of just disappeared. But it's a real, uh, it's the first Brownout record that has vocals on most of the tracks and uh, it's it's different it's dark it's uh it's just very different for a brownout record and i like it a lot and uh it's called berlin sessions check it out you can definitely hear how the brown sabbath stuff influenced the band in our compositions there's some interesting things that are not expected from brownout um yeah there's a cool track called seamus that i like a lot um, shame is like the Irish name, not like shame us because we're bastards. Come and shame us. No. Um, <laughs> um, 
Yeah, I really like Seamus. It's kind of a real interesting, broody, dark track. So that's a that's an interesting one, something different. Awesome. Well, we're going to hear it right now. Dude, thanks so much for coming on. No, nah, thank you, man. I look forward to seeing you and giving you a big old hug. Tuning into the highway this week. A big shout out to Reverend Guitars, Railhammer Pickups, and Earthquaker Devices. If you liked what you heard, you can follow where you can follow, subscribe where you can subscribe, and if you want to go one step further, you can support us on Patreon at The Highway with Kyle Shutt. For a few bucks a month, you can help us keep this party going, get early access to next week's episode, and even get yourself a shout out.